Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 19th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 23 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It is titled Arrogance and Humility. And that's because arrogance is the worship of idols in the face of God, while humility, true Christian humility, is agreement with God and subjection to God, period. A lot of wayward Christians believe that humility is kissing the asses of other men and making them feel good or making them feel better than you. And that's not humility. In fact, that's idolatry. Kissing the asses of other men and seeking to make other men happy is idolatry. Agreement with God and subjection to God is true and to his law and his word. That is true Christian humility. And when we all agree with God, we will all get along with our fellow men. Discussing the idolatry of kings, in our last presentation of this commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, it is evident that two such types of idolatry were described. The decrees of kings, which forced men to worship certain idols and the depravity of men who would worship and even encourage others to worship the kings themselves. Encouraging others to worship a king, they seek in turn to flatter the king while making a profit for themselves. So while at first, as we read in verse 16 of Wisdom chapter 14, graven images were worshipped by the commandments of kings, Later on, men made an express image of a king whom they honored. To the end that by this, their forwardness, they might flatter him that was absent as if he were present. And through this process, as Solomon described, the singular diligence of the artificer, the craftsman, did help to set forward the ignorant to more superstition. The former mode of idolatry, idolatry at the command of kings, was described as being compulsory. And the later, the idolatry of worshiping the kings themselves, Solomon described as being voluntary. But if we consider this further, even the compulsory form of such idolatry, whereby a king issues religious decrees, is only possible through the voluntary actions of men. A king cannot rule over any city or any nation unless a certain number of the population have willingly accepted that rule. As Thomas Jefferson said, nations have governments by the consent of the governed. So if a certain number of the population have willingly accepted the rule of a king, then 
and then they assist in compelling others to accept it, even when those others would otherwise refuse, using force on behalf of the man who would be king. Even kings are installed by dominant political parties, the word party actually being a euphemism for gang. So in rather simple language, Solomon is actually describing one aspect of how it is that the wicked come to rule over the righteous, and how they fulfill their endeavor where they had stated, as it was described in Wisdom chapter 2, let our strength be the law of justice, for that which is feeble is found to be nothing worth. The archaic language of the King James Version, that which is feeble or weak is found to be worth nothing, where Christians are compelled to assist and to respect the weak of their own brethren. In ancient times, as it is evidenced in surviving inscriptions, the kings of Egypt, as well as the kings of the Hittites and other tribes, had believed that they were the sun on earth, the representative of the sun god and the lawgiver who enlightens society. This is also the meaning of the epithet Lucifer or light bearer, seen in Isaiah chapter 14, where Yahweh God, the God of Israel, actually mocked the king of Babylon by giving him that epithet. Many commentators have made the mistake of believing that the Lucifer addressed in that passage is Satan as some sort of demonic entity. However, the surrounding context reveals that this epithet was directed at a man who would be the king of Babylon at some point in Isaiah's future, at the time when Babylon would fall. Another manifestation of the proclivity of certain men to worship kings as gods is seen in Acts chapter 12, where it speaks of Herod Agrippa I, and we read in verse 21, and this is soon after Peter had miraculously escaped when Herod had thrown him in prison. So we read in verse 21, and upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration to them. He's in Caesarea. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. This is generally esteemed to have happened in 44 AD in Caesarea, as, the, as that chapter of Acts also explains. And Josephus described the death of Herod similarly in Book 19 of his Antiquities. And to drive our point home, we will cite that at length that men were readily worshipped as kings, not only the as gods. The kings were readily worshipped as gods, not only the Roman emperors. The Roman emperors were also being worshipped as gods at this time. Claudius had his own cult in Rome, and they built temples to Claudius 
and were worshiping him as a god, even if Claudius himself did not claim to be a god. He was only as the emperor of the son of God, as they were called. But even other kings, men had been prone to worship as gods. So like Solomon has done in his example here, in Wisdom chapter 14, Josephus, in his own account of the death of Herod Agrippa I, which is much longer than that account in Acts chapter 12, Josephus had attributed to flatterers the, ex the exclamation that Herod was a god. So we shall read it in part. This is Antiquities, book 19, from line 343. Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower, and there he held shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, probably Caesar's safety, referring to the Emperor Claudius. At which festival, a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons, and such as were of dignity throughout his province. So this isn't the lower classes of people that are doing this. This is the principal men of the province who are doing this. On the second day of these shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a texture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. And I don't think Herod was surprised at all. It was probably his design to do something like that. And was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. So it is not unfair to imagine that in this manner, Herod actually looked like a Lucifer or a light bearer. And presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, for although we have hereto reverenced you only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him earlier in his life, and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, and commanded presently 
to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who is called by you immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots as it pleases God. For we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. When he said this, his pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a short time. But the multitude, now this is the also the worship of a man, the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with their wives and children. After the law of their country, their country, this is Flavius Josephus, and this is the coast of Palestine in Judea, near the ancient city of Dor. And Josephus says, after the law of their country, meaning not of his country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, worshipping a man, he could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age. So he was born about 10 BC. He was the son. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's not the Herod of the Gospels. The Herod of the Gospels is Herod Antipas, who was one of the other sons of Herod the Great. Herod and Philip were sons of Herod the Great by one wife, and Herod Agrippa by a different wife. Herod Agrippa I was the only Herod who ruled all Judea as king, as he had the favor of Claudius, and he was evidently worshipped by the people of Judea. He ruled as king for three years, from 41 AD, when Claudius became emperor, to 44 AD, when he died as we have just described, from Acts chapter 12, from one perspective, and from, the, from Josephus, from another perspective. So Herod Agrippa I was evidently worshipped by the people of Judea, especially in this coastal city, in an area which had long before come to be dominated by Edomites. Caesarea was only a short distance south of ancient Dor, where, as Josephus also described it, John Hyrcanus had first subjected the Edomites and forcibly converted them to Judaism. While the book of Acts describes the death of Agrippa and says that immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, Josephus referred to an owl as an angelos, a messenger or angel. So there is no real discrepancy between the two accounts outside of matters of perspective. Among the ancient Romans, the appearance of owls in certain places or at certain times were indeed seen as omens warning of imminent death. 
especially seeing an owl during the daytime because it's not normal to see an owl during the daytime. Herod was not a true Judean, but rather he was an Edomite. And Yahweh God often communicates with or merely sends messages to men, even to Edomites, on terms that they themselves can understand. That's the way God works. And we could demonstrate that over and over again in the scripture. Like when Balaam was rebuked by his own ass. Ultimately, the worshiping of idols and the worshiping of men as gods leads to many other sins, even as far as the corruption of the creation of God, as Solomon professed in verse 12 of this 14th chapter, omitting one word which was surreptitiously added by the translators. He said, for the devising of idols was the beginning of fornication and the invention of them, the corruption of life. So, as we had seen of those same wicked men earlier in wisdom, in chapter 5, at the moment of their judgment, the wicked shall be compelled to recognize the error of their ways, where they are portrayed as lamenting. Therefore, we have erred from the way of truth, and the light of righteousness has not shined unto us, and the sun of righteousness rose not upon us, the light of the true righteousness, which is the righteousness of Yahweh. We wearied ourselves in the way of wickedness and destruction. We have gone through deserts where there lay no way. But as for the way of the Lord, we have not known it. What has pride, pride is arrogance, what has pride profited us? Or what good has riches with our vaunting, our boasting out of arrogance, brought us? Then all of their works are described as vanity, as disappearing without a trace. As we had discussed earlier, in reference to Wisdom chapter 14, verse 12, where Solomon had referred to fornication, the King James, the King James translators had added the word spiritual, which is not in the text. And that is also pretty arrogant. This creates a lie and leaves one to imagine that Solomon was not referring to actual fornication. However, in Wisdom chapter 3, he had written, But the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. For whoso despises wisdom and nurture, he is miserable, and their hope is vain, their labors unfruitful, and their works unprofitable. Their wives are foolish, and their children wicked. Their offspring is cursed. So we have to consider how that could be, that their offspring is cursed, because their wives are foolish. And Solomon contrasts that to the pure, 
Wherefore, blessed is the barren that is undefiled, which has not known the sinful bed. She shall have fruit in the visitation of souls. A woman without children is blessed compared to a man or woman who would spawn bastards, who has no fruit in such labors. Such bastards are indeed the corruption of life of which Solomon had written in Wisdom chapter 14 in verse 12. Neglecting the righteous and taking wives which are foolish doesn't mean that the wives themselves are fool, are, are fools. It doesn't mean that the women are silly, which is silly in itself. It means that the choice of wives is foolish as they are not of the righteous. These men neglect the righteous and choose foolish wives. <clears throat> that means that the wives are not of the righteous and therefore not of the race of the children of Israel, <clears throat> whereby <clears throat> their children would indeed be bastards. This is corroborated in Wisdom chapter 4, where we further read, but the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. For though they flourish in branches for a time, yet standing not last, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. The imperfect branches shall be broken off, their fruit unprofitable, not ripe to eat, yeah, meat for nothing. For children begotten of unlawful beds are witnesses of wickedness against their parents in trial. And it is not that the children need to testify. They surely won't get an opportunity to testify being bastards but that their very existence is a testimony of the fornication committed by their father or perhaps by their mother. This is the fornication which results from the idolatry of kings. So after Jeroboam 1 decreed that the children of Israel worship pagan idols, we see the inevitable result in Hosea chapter 5 where it speaks of the Israelites of the northern kingdom. And it says, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Likewise, Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, had also encouraged race-mixing fornication among the children of Israel. As we read in Revelation chapter 2, where Christ had said, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then to commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. 
and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Ahab, the husband of Jezebel. Ahab came to rule Israel only about 36 years after the death of Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I being the king that mandated by decree the idolatry in Israel. And perhaps 58 years after the death of Solomon, Ahab became the king of Israel. And it is evident that from the time where Jeroboam I decreed idolatry throughout the land, that the nation descended into immorality very quickly. The magnitude, it only took two generations. The magnitude is evident whereby the prophet Elijah had confronted 450 priests of Baal by himself in 1 Kings chapter 18. He had no help. He cried thinking he was alone. But as Solomon wrote, that the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive. Yahshua Christ had promised that I will kill her children with death, as Jezebel came to be an example of race-mixing idolatrous, race-mixing fornicators. So we see that idolatry, and especially the idolatry of kings, leads men to physically destroy the creation of God through such fornication. Today, throughout Christendom, we see that same pattern has been repeated once again as men worship their rulers, especially the rulers installed by their own party, and fornication flourishes. As Solomon also described, this leads to many other sins within the general society, and especially the defilement of marriages by adultery or even by murder. Yet the ultimate punishment has not changed, and it shall indeed be executed by the wrath of God. So we shall continue where we left off in Wisdom chapter 14. And Solomon continues to speak of the sins of those who would worship idols, where he concluded and said in verse 27, and that's right where we left off, for the worshiping of idols not to be named because the law forbids us from naming the false gods of the heathen, is the beginning, the cause, and the end of all evil. Now as he proceeds, he attests to the arrogance and inevitable punishment of the idolaters in verse 28 of Wisdom chapter 14. For either they are mad when they be merry, or prophecy lies, or live unjustly, or else lightly forswear themselves. That language is rather archaic. The word forswear may be misunderstood. And therefore, we shall translate this verse more literally. We're going to retranslate a few verses this evening. 
For either rejoicing, they are mad, or they prophesy lies, or live unjustly, or quickly swear false oaths, forswear themselves. It has two meanings, that word forswear. It's to swear false oaths here from the original Greek, which only has one meaning. Being mad while they rejoice. The Greek verb for mad is mahinomahi. And, and actually, as a digression, it comes from the Greek word for the moon, mene. And the moon was actually connected to people being mad, which is where we get the English word manic and mania. So now you understand that. So, Mahino Mahi is primarily to be furious as being enraged with anger, but it was also used to describe the drunken frenzy of those participating in pagan festivals, such as the Bacchic festivals, the mad orgies of the pagan Greeks. That last sense is how we would interpret it here as it relates to the worshiping of idols mentioned in the previous verse and to those same men who would trust in idols which are described in the next verse, in verse 29. For insomuch as their trust is in idols which have no life, though they swear falsely, they look not to be hurt. And people today might scratch their heads at that and, and wonder why they, a man would be hurt if he swore falsely upon an idol. Of course, today a man's words to many men, not to all men. There's a lot of good men that live by their word. But today to many men and many women, their word means nothing. They could promise something today and forget about it in 10 minutes, and it doesn't even harm their consciences. Or if they make a contract, they try to word it in a manner where they could just beat you out of something. In ancient times, men swore by their gods, or in the case of the ancient Israelites, by Yahweh their God. And they made their oaths under the presumption of an expectation of punishment by the God if they did not fulfill their obligations. And men were serious about that once upon a time. Evidently, not the pagans, but the Christians were serious about it. And the pre-Christian Christians those who, whose God was Yahweh, they were serious about it. So in Roman law and religion, since all the law is actually based on religion, there was the sacramentum, by which oath a man made a vow under which his fate would be given up to the gods for punishment if he violated the vow if he didn't fulfill his promise. Similar beliefs are found in much more ancient cultures, which is evident in the surviving inscriptions. Inscriptions of the Hittites, the Akkadians, the Egyptians. 
But this concept is also evident at a much earlier time in Scripture. This we see as early as Genesis chapter 21, where Abimelech, the king of Gerar, who was essentially a pagan, had addressed Abraham, and we read in verse 22 of the chapter, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now, therefore, swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. But according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. So Abraham must have understood the custom of swearing by a god. And in the next sentence, in the next verse, he answered with an affirmation in verse 24. And Abraham said, I will swear. So throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites were accustomed to swear by the name of Yahweh their God and should have expected to be punished for not keeping their oaths. Thus we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this is what it means when we read this. It's speaking about oaths that you are interacting, that you are giving to other men to fulfill contracts and to work with men in your community. That's what it's speaking about, the day-to-day -day oaths that you make. Okay, I need a, a Christian brother to repair my roof. And he comes to my house, shakes my hand, and says, as, as Yahweh wills, I'll do it for $5,000. So I give him $5,000 and expect him to fix my roof. That's the type of swearing this is talking about. The regular day-to-day -day making of oaths and compacts among men, agreements that are necessary to conduct business and, and to have a viable community. Okay, maybe it's not $5,000. Maybe it's two goats and, and an ox. I'll give you two goats and an ox to fix my roof. <laughs> okay, so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. In other words, when you make your oaths and, con and, and contracts, you're actually invoking the name of Yahweh your God. Because he is going to punish your ass if you don't fulfill your side of the bargain. Then where they, where, where they, where they did not, I'm sorry, I, I needed some editing here. Then where they did not keep their oaths, they were reprimanded in Jeremiah chapter 5 in verse 2. And though they say Yahweh lives, Surely they swear falsely. So the people professed, making their oaths, that Yahweh was a living and therefore a true God, but they still showed no fear. And they did not keep their oaths. 
However, the false idols, as Solomon described it here, the false idols upon which men had sworn as gods have no life, as Solomon explained here in verse 29. And therefore, men could swear false oaths, regardless of whether they believed in the false god or intended to keep the oaths in the first place. And therefore, there would be no punishment for treachery. You could swear on a false idol, on a false god, all you want. Who's going to punish you when you don't fulfill your promise? But in spite of that, as Solomon now explains, ultimately they would suffer punishment. Because swearing by false gods, they nevertheless sinned against Yahweh God. So we read in Wisdom chapter 14, verse 30, Howbeit for both causes they shall be justly punished, both because they thought not well of God, giving heed unto idols, and also unjustly swore in deceit, despising holiness. The first clause of verse 30 may have been translated more literally to say, but for both causes punishments shall pursue them. Now, as a grammatical note, in the Greek, there is a number mismatch here, where the verb metalusitahi is a third-person singular form, but a plural form is expected as the subject is plural. But there is no other way to translate the cause without suffering the error of grammar. So perhaps it was caused by the error of a scribe or the translator. Unjustly swearing in deceit, or with guile, as the word dollars is often translated in the New Testament, Solomon is suggesting that men purposely swore on idols because they knew, or they thought, that there would be no consequences. The idol, not having any ability to hold men to their oaths or to punish men for breaking them. But Yahweh, the living God, he is God whether or not men worship idols. So in the end, they have no choice but to obey him and act towards one another in regard to him. Therefore, as we had read in Wisdom chapter 3, in verse 10, the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. Now, Solomon further explains that when they are punished, it is not the idols which shall punish them. The idols can't punish anybody, but these men are going to be punished anyway. These men who swear false oaths, who don't fulfill their obligations to their fellow man. For it is not the power of them by whom they swear, but it is the just vengeance of sinners that punisheth always the offense of the ungodly. And that word for offense is parabasis, which is often transgression in the King James Version in the New Testament. And the word for ungodly is a plural form of adikas. Adikas, as a substantive, 
which is better translated as unjust or unrighteous. It's not talking about those without God. It's talking about the people of God who are doing this, who are pursuing idols and swearing false oaths. Here the chapter concludes. But the subject of idolatry will continue to be addressed from a different perspective in chapter 15. However, before we begin with that chapter, it may be fitting to note how Solomon's words here are reflected in the state of the children of Israel 400 years later, as it is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 23. Of course, as Jeremiah wrote, Israel had already been taken into captivity, but the sin stemming from idolatry had also become prevalent in Judah. So both kingdoms are addressed, Israel and Judah. While we will not repeat the entire chapter or the descriptions of how they would be punished for their sins, we will present the portions most relevant to the examples Solomon had used to describe the consequences of idolatry here in Wisdom chapter 14. So from Jeremiah chapter 23. Mine heart within me, and, and that's, of course, Jeremiah's heart. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets, and he's referring to the false prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome. Because of Yahweh and because of the words of his holiness. For the land is full of adulterers, mentioned in Wisdom chapter 14. For because of swearing, because of the false oaths, the land mourns. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yet in my house I have found their wickedness, saith Yahweh. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal. The whole thing is due to their idolatry. And caused my people Israel to err. I have also seen in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. So this affected Judah as well as Israel. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none does return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. And skipping to verse 16, because I've been skipping a few verses. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of Yahweh. They say still unto them that despise me, Yahweh hath said, ye shall have peace. These are the false prophets saying that. And they say unto everyone that walks after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. Just as Solomon said here, that these sinners didn't think they were going to be punished for their sin. That these people engaged in idolatry 
in verse 29. For insomuch as their trust is in idols which have no life, although they swear falsely, yet they look not to be hurt. They didn't think that it would be any punishment from swearing on false gods and not fulfilling their obligations. When we take this idea of swearing and we translate it into modern terms as contracts and oaths and promises to other men, then it makes perfect sense that these issues with the Israelites in the Old Testament are not mere religious issues. They all had to do with how the people of God treat one another. That's what they refer to. Swearing isn't saying what we call a cuss word in modern terminology. Cuss words in modern terminology only equate to false piety that a man is offended by a single word and he'd rather use a euphemism for that word. That is bullshit. That is false piety. To swear is to make an oath to promise to do something. And if you don't do it, you've sworn falsely and you profane the name of God by your failure to fulfill your promise. When you swear on an idol, you think you're going to get away with it. As the ancient Israelites, obviously, from wisdom and from here in Jeremiah, thought they were going to get away with it. But in the end, they're not going to get away with it. So everyone that walks after the imagination of his own heart thought, no evil shall come upon you because that's what the prophets were telling them. Those false prophets, the prophets of multiculturalism, international trade, and diversity, because that's what they were. The prophets of why can't we all just get along, because that's what they were. So we read in Jeremiah 23, verse 21, the word of Yahweh. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. I have heard what the prophet said. The prophecy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. I have a dream. <laughs> How many of us remember that? How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophecy lies? Yeah, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. So here in Jeremiah, we see all the same language that we see of, of idolaters in Wisdom chapter 14, all the same sins, the same patterns of apostasy and idolatry. Here it is clear that the idolatry of Israel led them to commit all of the same sins and to bear the same arrogance which Solomon attributes to the men in his examples here that idolatry leads to adultery and fornication and the corruption of the race and also to the making of heat and the purposeful failure to keep them and to the false concept of peace, even with the enemies of God, and to the belief that one would not be punished for his sins. So we see precisely the same sins 
of which Solomon here has made examples in Wisdom chapter 14. The prophet also mentioned as being most notable among the idolaters of Israel, the same sins which the prophet also mentioned as being most notable among the idolaters of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 23. We have already explained that these are also the same sins which Paul of Tarsus had described were the results of idolatry in Romans chapter 1. This is also the same idolatry that has permeated the once Christian society of today. And how shall men not escape punishment as our ancient forebears did not escape punishment? The first man, Adam, sinned in spite of his having known Yahweh God. Several generations later, the descendants of Adam sinned in spite of the fact that they must have known something of his judgment. Then once again, the sons of Noah sinned at Babel in spite of the fact that they must have understood the circumstances surrounding the great flood, which their fathers must have also related to them. Then in spite of all, in spite of having all of that history in their own scriptures, the ancient Israelites, knowing Yahweh and also having his laws, justified their sins by forsaking him for the worship of idols, and in their own arrogance, they also thought that they would escape punishment. So forsaking Yahweh, we cannot help but sin. And we sin arrogantly as we have purposely forsaken God. But now as we proceed with Wisdom chapter 15, we may see that even Solomon understood the Christian concept of humility, which the apostles had also taught, which is to acknowledge one's sin and seek forgiveness without imagining that one may escape the judgments of God. Therefore, as Solomon continues his description of the consequences of idolatry in Wisdom chapter 15, he also explains that Yahweh God shall have mercy upon those who were not deceived by the worship of idols. So we begin with Wisdom chapter 15, verse 1. But thou, O God, art gracious and true, long-suffering, and in mercy ordering all things. That word long-suffering, which only appears three times in the King James Version Old Testament, but always as an aspect of the patience of God. In Hebrew and in Greek means patience. The same Greek words, macrothumus and macrothumia, appear more often in the letters of Paul and also three times in those of Peter, where the apostles note not only the patience of God, but encourage Christians to have that same patience in respect of one another. Thus Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness or humility, 
and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's real peace. That describes true peace. That same long-suffering is also an aspect of Christian humility. To agree with God. Not to kiss the asses of other men, but that all men should agree with God. And if other men do not agree with Yahweh our God and seek to keep his commandments, then we can't be humble towards them. Because then we are accommodating sinners. Here in this verse, in verse 1, the King James translators had missed, or perhaps omitted, a pronoun in the opening clause of the verse, where they have, but thou, O God, we would render that to say, but you, our God. Once again, we must keep in mind that this entire discourse, since the very beginning of Wisdom chapter 9, represents a single prayer for wisdom, which Solomon had made to Yahweh upon his having become king. Making this prayer, as we also saw at the beginning of Wisdom chapter 6, he is also advising all those who would rule as king after him. So where he is evidently also certain that the promises which Yahweh God made to the children of Israel would be fulfilled in spite of their sins, he says in Wisdom chapter 15 in verse 2, for if we sin, we are thine, or yours in modern English, knowing thy power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are counted thine, knowing that we are counted as belonging to God. This, in turn, reflects a struggle with which every Christian and surely every Hebrew Israelite before Christ had to contend. For this the Apostle John had written, for this very thing which Solomon writes here, the Apostle John had written in chapter 2 of his first epistle, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, or society. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So while Christians should, of course, strive to keep the commandments, being mere men under various circumstances, it is inevitable that we may fail. For which reason, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And David, in the 143rd Psalm, had written that, For in thy sight shall no living man be justified. A passage which Paul also cited in that same chapter of Romans. 
To understand this is to understand the manner in which Christians should be humble. As Christian humility is not the pleasing of other men, but rather the acknowledgement of sin and the desire to please God. So in that respect, Solomon said, if we sin, we are thine. And later the apostle John wrote, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father. For that same reason, knowing that sin was inevitable, Paul of Tarsus wrote in Romans chapter 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. In other words, we're going to do things that we know better that we shouldn't do. For what I would or for what I wish or desire. That do I not, but what I hate, that I do. In other words, he, he's, his carnal desires in his body are forcing him to sin against his spiritual understanding. So once in a while, that could happen with men. If we sin, we are thine, as Solomon said knowing thy power, but we will not sin. We don't want to sin, knowing that we are counted thine. And that's exactly what John in 1 John chapter 2 is also saying, that if any man sin, we have an advocate. While at the same time, he's saying that we have to keep the commandments. So Paul in Romans chapter 7 verse 16 said, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. So even if we sin in, in our failure, in our human failure, and we recognize we failed, and we remember the law, we consent unto the law that it is good. We seek to please God even when we fail. And we have to try to do better. But we have an advocate in Christ. So, Paul, John, and the wisdom of Solomon are all on the same page in that respect. So, true humility is found in agreement with the law of God, in spite of our sins, and knowing that we, being sinful, cannot save ourselves. True humility is found where we consent to his law because only he can save us. So Solomon continues in that same manner, and he says in verse 3 of Wisdom chapter 15, For to know thee is perfect righteousness. Yeah, to know thy power is the root of immortality. Solomon had already written in chapter 2 of Wisdom, that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. So here he is not contradicting that. But he said that the root of immortality is in the power of God. 
as Paul had written in Romans chapter 5, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in Romans chapter 6, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Without the acknowledgement of Christ, there can be no immortality. Yahshua Christ is the power of God. As the King James Version translates the passage where Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but unto them which are called, both Judeans and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Apostle John ended his first epistle summarizing these same concepts where, almost as if he had this very portion of, of the wisdom of Solomon in mind, in 1 John chapter 5 we read, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we, we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, in the wisdom of Solomon, we know why. Now it becomes explicitly manifest that Solomon is writing for the sake of those who had not been deceived by idolatry, although ostensibly those who had gone off into idolatry would never see these words. And we read in verse 4 of Wisdom chapter 15, For neither did the mischievous invention of men deceive us, nor an image spotted with diverse colors, the painter's fruitless labor. And that word for deceive, planeo, is properly to lead astray. But the King James translators also neglected to fully render the noun, cacotechnus, which is not merely mischievous, but describes wicked arts or evil practices. So we would translate this verse to read, for neither did the deceitfully crafted invention of men lead us astray nor the fruitless labor of painting an image stained with a variegated surface. And that's as close to an absolute literal translation as I could possibly get. It is not well known by most people today, but it has only recently been demonstrated in a study conducted at Harvard University and publicized in an exhibit in 2007 titled Gods in Color, Painted Sculpture of Classical Antiquity. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this exhibit, it was made manifest that the idols and statues of the ancient Greek world were painted with many vibrant colors by the hands of what were evidently highly skilled artisans. Here in Wisdom, it is evident that the practice is very old indeed. So in our translation of this passage, some words were translated with 
that consideration as Skiagrappos is sketching more literally than painting, and Dialasso is variegated here in reference to the paint, but it is more literally to change or to interchange, as it is described by Solomon in the verse which follows. The effect which the idols had on observers justifies our interpretation of this verse. We're describing the image, he said. The sight thereof entices fools to lust after it, and so they desire the form of a dead image that has no breath. So they were desiring something enticing. We would translate this verse more literally to read, of which the sight arouses desire in fools, and it longs for the lifeless form of a dead image. And apparently, this is the second time in this passage of in this chapter of wisdom, there is another grammatical error in a number mismatch here where the verb for longs is a third-person singular form. So we wrote it longs, it longs, while we would expect a third-person plural. They long, referring to the aforementioned fools. So there's a number mismatch, but there's no other obviously correct way to translate the verse. In any event, we see that these idols, which were central to the pagan worship of the Canaanites and other races of Mesopotamia and the Near East, just as they were to the Greeks, these idols were also objects of lustful desire. Much of the early Greek art, which still survives, actually depicts lewd scenes representing sexual objects of desire, whether they be women or boys, or even sexual acts from early Greek mythology. I, I don't know, in the land of Canaan, I know that a lot of little icons were found which were carved in the form of women with absolutely ridiculously huge breasts, or in Anatolia, with women with six, eight, ten, or twelve breasts. So I don't know how, I, I, I don't, for my part, I really don't know how that would arouse desire. <laughs> Some of them were kind of bordering on ridiculous, but many of them were, were, were very beautiful in their form and were meant to arouse desire. So ancient idolatry was basically a form of what we know today as pornography. So now Solomon speaks, once again, of the artists and their admirers in Wisdom chapter 15, verse 6. Both they that make them, they that desire them, and they that worship them are lovers of evil things and are worthy to have such things to trust upon. And I am also compelled to render this passage more literally worthy lovers of evil and of such objects of hope, even those making and those desiring and those worshiping.
and of course the King James has them in the in its translation, but them is not in the original text. I guess we could imply it, but I would rather not add it. Rather than those making here, the term hoi drontes is more accurately those doing, that verb, dreo, being defined by Liddell and Scott as to do, accomplish, especially to do some great thing, whether good or bad. There is no example where it may mean make, except for where it also appears in Wisdom chapter 14, verse 10 and clearly describes the man who made an idol. So, so that is a peculiar use of this verb here in wisdom, which is not evident in any other Greek writing. And yes, I also checked the Septuagint. While Solomon began his dissertation on idolatry, with an example of a man who made useful wooden objects, if you want to remember back a few chapters, but turned his spare time to make an idol of useless wood. Now he makes a similar analogy of a potter. For the potter, tempering soft earth, fashions every vessel with much labor for our service. Yeah, of the same clay, he makes both the vessels that serve for clean uses, a cooking vessel or a serving vessel, or a vessel for wine, and likewise also all such as serve to the contrary, perhaps a wash pot or a nighttime basin that you would use by your bed or something like that. I don't want to be too explicit. But what is the use of either sort? <clears throat> the potter himself is the judge. In Isaiah chapter 64, the children of Israel are portrayed rather prophetically as acknowledging Yahweh God and attesting. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou our potter. And we all are the work of thine hand. Of course, it seems that to this day, such a testimony of humility is not yet entirely filled. Fulfilled. We read another analogy of Yahweh God to a potter in Jeremiah chapter 18, where because the children of Israel were a vessel about to be remolded by God, we read, Then I went down to the potter's house, verse 3, and behold, a work wrought on the wheels. And the vessel that he made was clay. Of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. So he made it again another vessel. In other words, he started from scratch with the same clay. As seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith Yahweh. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. The children of Israel were about to be remolded by God in the Assyrian captivities. Much later, Paul of Tarsus would make his own analogy of the potter and clay, comparing 
Jacob and Esau as two vessels made from the same lump for both good and evil purposes, as we have just seen here in Wisdom chapter 15, verse 7. So he wrote in Romans chapter 9, Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much long-suffering, there's that word again, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. And here he was comparing Jacob and Esau in an analogy very much like we find at Wisdom chapter 15, verse 7. But while Yahweh God may be compared to a potter, he certainly does not work lewdly, as Solomon is about to describe the potter of his analogy, making a third sort of vessel. And employing his labors lewdly, he makes a vain god of the same clay. Even he, which a little before was made of earth himself, and this is also a pretty interesting analogy, and within a little while after, returns to the same. Out when his life which was lent him shall be demanded. The phrase, employing his labors lewdly, comes from an adjective, cacomachthus, which literally means evil working, or as Liddell and Scott define it, citing this very passage of wisdom, working ill or working perversely. So here Solomon notes the irony of a man, the man who is made from dust, as men are made from dust, and who shall indeed return to dust. As Yahweh had warned Adam himself in the scriptures in Genesis 3.19, the irony where such a man who himself was made from the dust of the earth would in turn make an idol of the clay of the ground and worshiping it imagines it to be a god. Yet the potter is not alone in the folly of his craft. As Solomon continues and says, notwithstanding his care is not that he shall have much labor, nor that his life is short, but he strives to excel goldsmiths and silversmiths and endeavors to do like the workers in brass and counts it his glory to make counterfeit things. You're proud of yourself and what you do with your hands, but you're a screw up. You're screwing up. Speaking of the idols of the heathen, we read in the 115th Psalm, which is attributed to David. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Here, these idols are described as kibdalis, in the plural as counterfeit things, but spurious, fraudulent, or deceitful are also appropriate. The potter may have been concerned with the great labors he would face over a relatively short life. And instead, 
he is described as having sought to outdo the men of all of the other crafts who are also engaged in seeking to profit from making idols, striving to make even better idols than they would. While it seems that the potter would do such things out of pride and arrogance, as Solomon had explained earlier, and not out of humility, in any event, the potter's life, like that of all other men, would end in humility. So Solomon describes the inevitable reward of the, of the potter's efforts. In verse 10, his heart is ashes. His hope is more vile, or literally that is actually a word for cheaper. His hope is cheaper than earth or dirt, if you will. And his life of less value or honor than clay. So it seems that there are many parallels with another work of Solomon's, which is Ecclesiastes. There are many parallels here in the wisdom of Solomon with Ecclesiastes, as there he had described all of the works of man as vanity, but in the end explained that with God, men did not live in vain, that they would be judged for their works. So now, Solomon explains why the works of this potter are vain, at least so far as he had turned to making idols. And he says in verse 11 of Wisdom chapter 15, For as much as he knew not his maker, and him that inspired him into, an act, into him an active soul, and breathed in a living spirit. So we see that that interpretation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where Yahweh had breathed in his spirit into Adam, and that is the eternal spirit within man, we see that that was also shared, that same interpretation by Solomon here in Wisdom chapter 15, verse 11. As Solomon had in quite a different manner in Ecclesiastes, he once again suggests here that if the potter had sought to know his maker, Perhaps all of his works may not have been vanity. For a potter who spends his time creating idols, the clay which he abuses, because he's abusing the creation of God making idols, the clay which he abuses is more valuable than the potter himself. The dirt is more valuable than the potter if the potter is going to turn to making idols. So his hope is more vile than earth and his life of less value than clay. So if you turn to making idols, your, white, your life is worth less than dirt. In Isaiah chapter 2, we read of the day of the wrath of Yahweh. And it says that the loftiness of man 
shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low. That's their arrogance, the arrogance of their worshiping of idols. And Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day, and the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of Yahweh. And for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth, in that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they had made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. In other words, they will be cast into the caves of the earth. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of Yahweh. And for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth. While the idols usually have different forms, the loftiness or arrogance of man in his idolatry is just as relevant today as it was in the time of Isaiah. And once again, the lofty await the wrath of Yahweh. The analogy continues here in Wisdom chapter 15 as Solomon describes the vanity of idolatry and, Yahweh willing, we will return to wisdom soon. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.